Hello, and welcome to Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with actress, scout Taylor Compton, and dance promoter Jim Smith. That's coming up on Endeavors. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. It's uh, election day here in Canada, so we're all paying very closely to the pandemic federal election. So if you're listening in Canada, by the time you listen to this, there might be a new government or there might be the same government. Uh, But... Whatever your political leanings are, I just hope you get out there and vote. I don't really do politics on this podcast, so this is not a a political show. Um, I'm sticking to my arts background and arts route with two great, uh, very different guests today. My first one is an actress who got her start... Uh, as a child star appearing in such TV shows as Ally McBeal, ER, Fraser, The Gar- the Lion's Den, Gilmore Girls, Unfabulous, Cold Case, That's So Raven, Charmed, and Without a Trace. She's also appeared in the films Sleepover, starring pr- previous Endeavors guest Mika Borum, 13 going on... 30, An American Crime, and Triple Dog. And as she moved into young adult actor, she became known as a scream queen. Uh, She grew up around a father who was a mortician, an embalmer, So she's always had the dark sense of humor. And although her latest film isn't a horror film, it's a Western, uh, there are a lot of darkly humorous one-liners and sort of, you know, cheeky humor that she really, really enjoys. She, in question, is Scout Taylor Compton, And her new film, which also co-stars Thomas Jane and Stuart Townsend and Trace Atkins, is Apache Junction. This is a conversation I had with Scout Taylor Compton. Hi. Hi, Scout. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Just uh, enjoying the change of seasons up here in, in Canada. Oh, amazing. Oh, I bet it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been a good summer for the most part. Oh, it's amazing! I'm I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> um, I got a chance to see uh, Apache Junction the other night, uh, and I I really enjoyed the film. You know, I think one in my notes, one of the things I made about it was for a western, it was I think less macho than I thought it was gonna be. Um, yeah. 
for you and and also seeing seeing a woman sort of the at you know in the front and center of a western i i, I think is different as well what what intrigued you about the role of annabelle angel um i think well you nailed it on the head right there um i think i think honestly the the courage um and the backbone of annabelle I feel like um, a lot of people are going to be very surprised that it, it, it does follow a, a, a female and it's about this female's journey into this dark land. And I feel like that's kind of what attracted me to it. And Annabelle's not like a regular woman was back then. Um, a lot of women were very afraid and, and she is definitely not that, um, I feel like she's just kind of driven by this inner courage of herself and she's out to prove herself in this man's world. And I think it was just such an honor to be able to play uh, a woman like that. I Do you notice there are, there are certain scenes, I'm thinking of the one where she first walks into Al's bar, She Annabelle has a very distinctive speech pattern. Um, mm-hmm. As an actor, what what how how does that affect the performance? Get you know, having having to learn to speak a different way as part of a character. I think it, I mean it, it. It that's the fun part. I feel like you know that was interesting for me to try to figure out who Annabelle was. I mean, women back there. She's not from Apache Junction, so the women there, you know, they've got more of a twang. They also are not you know, they don't really come from, like, a proper background, you know, they were, like, you know, they kind of came from, I guess, lower class, and Annabelle came from the big city. She doesn't have as much of a twang, but she also carries herself, like, more posh and more, like, well-spoken, I I feel like. But I also wanted to show um, that that's who she was raised to be, and then I did want to show as the movie progressed that she kind of kind of loosened up a bit. You know, she she learned a lot from the junction and the junction learned a lot from her. And that's what I wanted to show. Uh, another aspect of the film, obviously, was horseback riding. Was that something you uh-huh. were familiar with going into or, or was that something you you learned for for the role? Um, so I've, I've done um, I've done a couple of westerns before. So I've been on horses uh, a couple of times. My my boyfriend actually we own we have two horses, so I'm always learning to ride. Um, but it was very wonderful with this movie. We had the access to the horses all the time. So when I wasn't on the horse on screen, I was on a horse off screen. You know, I was constantly trying to like. Um, get better at that but it's also just fun in general to be able to be around these special creatures and to be able to to learn um how to how to you know be one with the horse and and have that relationship um my horse in particular she was a little challenging um and I think you know being on horses prior definitely helped me if I hadn't oh, there's no way I would have been able to handle Peaches, my horse. She's a woman. Women horses are really hard. They're very challenging. They've got a mind of their own. And you kind of got to be a little bit, you can't be afraid of a horse. You've got to be able to stand your ground, which was 
Annabelle and and myself. So that that showed a lot with my horse. I was constantly having to like redirect peaches, especially because you always try to bite me all the time. <laughs> You're like, hey. Stop it, man. We're filming. <laughs> One thing I appreciated about the film was, you know, there, there in the script, there are definitely some very sort of darkly humorous one-liners that are that are uttered, you know, whether it was by Ford or by, by Oslo Pike. I get the sense that g- given your, your sort of love of horror that you you really were drawn to, to that style of humor. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I love, I love dark, dark, the darker, the better, honestly. I feel like, well, I, I feel like with, with the, the world anyways, I feel like it's, it's, it's now starting not to be, but I feel like we were so sheltered, you know? And I feel like, you know, the world isn't, isn't all rainbows and sunshines. And I feel like with like the way that people interact and the way that people talk to each other, it's not all like, you know, nice and and i and i love i love like the realness of like the darkness and and i that definitely resonated with like the horror as well with with the writing for sure justin lee you know the director and he also wrote it he's he's a big fan of horror movies so it definitely shows like his 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 writing style for sure i was gonna ask i mean you've done a lot of horror you've done a lot of westerns do you do you see any similarities between the two genres at all um I mean, yeah, I, de- I definitely do with, like, what you were saying with, like, the darkness, and I feel like the campiness of it a little bit. Um, you know, Westerns can be as, just as campy in their own way as a horror movie can. Um, I think, like, uh, yeah, the, like, the same like the same story outline, kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like two peas in a pie, but they're just, like, a, a different outline but um I, I i feel like the campiness for sure is probably the similarities um like westerns kind of i mean sometimes when i watch western movies i'm like laughing at it and it's the same with horror movies and you know there's also like that dark darker aspect of westerns that horror movies have as well what was it like shooting in new mexico Oh, it was so lovely. I love New Mexico. I really do. I have such a, I have such a love for the desert because I grew up in the desert. So I, I love that, that atmosphere is just like, it's like calming for me to be, to be in that. And, you know, we, we filmed in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which I actually had never been to before. And it's such a special, charming place. And to be able to film there, especially like the locals were so uh, inviting and it was just such a such a cool experience. Uh, one other thing you you got to do in this was uh, fire a couple of different types of guns. Um, yeah. What? What? You know, which I think for many actors can be somewhat of a nerve wracking experience. But what what was that like for you? And in what kind of conversations went went into that? You know, it's so interesting. I, I, <laughs> you know, when you say that. Um, with like shooting a shooting a gun for this, I I don't know how many guns I've shot in my career. I've shot so many guns. <laughs> I mean, I've I've shot everything. So it's it's kind of it was really fun. I I love I love shooting guns and stuff like that. Um, I haven't really done ever done it in real life, but I've shot a lot of guns on screen, and I know that they're different. Um, but it kind of goes through like the same the same cycle in every set. It's like you've you've got um, 
you've got the guy, the the guy on set that handles the guns, that shows you how they're 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 properly used, who makes sure that the the set is safe, no one's around, and like this big extravagant like thing. And then when you get there and you shoot the gun, it's like, you know, it's just just like smoke, and you're like, oh, well, that was it. But um, but yeah, no, it's it's really really fun. I think I think Stewart had a lot more of the the action stuff which is really rad you know the explosions and stuff like that it, you know it's funny watching this film it it sort of struck me how re- relevant and relatable it is today you've got the dispute between the army and the residents and then there's wasco and maybe the whole you know settlers versus uh indigenous um peoples mm-hmm. Were were those conversations that that happened on set in in terms of what Justin was was trying to tell with this story? Well, I think it's definitely relatable to to like what we go through as a society, anyways. You know, I, I feel like this story is a it's constantly played. It's constantly played throughout history, constantly, no matter how you dress it or, or, or mask it. It's just a constant thing that society is dealing with. And I just hope that one day we will be able to like come together. But I, I, I definitely think that that's, you know, I, I think that was kind of Justin's like nod at like what we're going through here, but just making it look a little bit different. There was a great cast uh, in the film yourself, Thomas Jane, Stuart Townsend, Trace Atkins. Um, mm-hmm. What is the importance of, of cast cohesion um, in, in a film like this? Oh, it's 100% important. It really, really, really is. And as I'm about to direct my first uh, feature later next year, I this, this, this movie in particular definitely taught me that, the importance of, of casting. And, and casting to the type. Um, I mean, everybody, everybody meets, is their character. Like, Thomas is his character. Stuart is his character. Trace is his character. Like, you, like there's just, like, so many parts of these actors that are these characters, and it's just so cool to see them mesh them together. And, you know, all of these, these actors, it's not their first rodeo. Uh-huh, I see what I did there, that pun. It's not their first rodeo at all. They've, they've, they're very well-developed actors, and they all come from different backgrounds, just like these characters do. So it was really, really important, I feel like, to, to get who we got in this film, for sure. You you mentioned directing, and I I noticed that a lot of uh, people in the, who start out in the business of, as children do find their way to to directing uh eventually uh and mm-hmm. uh, uh i had mika buram on a little while ago and she and she talked about that as well was was that oh all... mika oh she was great let me tell you we had so much fun uh, um, oh i love mika <laughs> was that always uh a, something that you that you wanted to do uh was direct you can sort of consider it a a natural progression from from you know child to to adult uh, actor? Yeah, you know, to, to answer the first question, was it something that I always thought I was going to do? Heck no, no, no. It <laughs> never crossed my mind, ever. I, like, 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 
not the one thing I did not want to do. I was like, I'm not going to direct. I'm going to be an actor. Or the only other thing that I thought maybe I would do was casting because I loved like casting. And I, I, I would always like coach uh, other actors and I like loved getting into a character and like, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think that, you know, I've been in it for so long that it's like I know my way around pretty much every department in filmmaking from camera to to props to to casting to makeup to hair like to costume i i have learned it all because i've wanted to learn everything not just i'm the actor that shows up and i know my lines you know i've just been i'm like i'm i love this i love this field of work that i'm in but i just i want to learn everything and you know when i when you do independent movies sometimes the sets are a hundred percent Sometimes they're not with how they're run. And a lot of the times I would find myself like helping out departments and making things that were running smoothly. And it just kind of clicked that I was like, well, I'm running other people's best. Why am I not running my own? I was like, I can do this. Like, I really can do this. Like, I really like like doing this I like I actually like and love filmmaking and I love every aspect of it that's a director you know very hands-on one thing I did learn from one of my favorite directors is Rob Zombie he was he was fucking hands-on he was hands-on in every department and that's what I feel like makes a really really good director and I didn't realize that I I I had that until you know Thirty thirty years into my career, <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, okay, I really want to do that. I uh, I, I brought up Mika, so I, I I wanted to ask you then, um, any favorite memories from Sleepover? Oh my God, so many! I love Mika, I really do. I keep on telling her, I'm like, so when are you gonna direct me in a movie? She's like, I will. I was like, okay, <laughs> um, but I, we had so much fun on that set. You know, we were kids, so our our schools were on the set and it, it was kind of like set up like you know the popular girls were in one side the unpopular girls are on the other side the boys were over on the other side so we we would have like a lot of like classroom wars so that was really fun to like play pranks on one another and you know it, it was such a good time to work on and you know Steve Carell he it was like before his career like shot off and you know steve would like put on these little shows for us you know like comedy acts and it was just so fun to like to watch him like do all these things and you know make us laugh all the time it was such a good time uh well the film is apache junction uh i really enjoyed it uh scout taylor compton thanks so much for for taking the time today uh, thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having me. All righty. Have a good day and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you. You too. Right, ciao. Once again, that was my conversation with actress and future director, as she mentioned there, Scout Taylor Compton. Her new film is Apache Junction. From film, we move into the wild, wild world of 
dance. And specifically with Jim Smith, who is the artistic director of Dance House. And Dance House is an organization that is based out of Vancouver and one of the founding partners of uh, a project, I guess you could call it, called Digidance. And Digidance um, is obviously Dance House, as I mentioned, in Vancouver. Uh, it also includes Harbourfront Centre in Toronto, the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, and Dance Dance in Montreal. And it was it's a joint initiative, full-length Canadian international dance content online to patrons across the country that was started in July of last year as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's, it's digital online dance performances. Uh, and the one that is uh, coming up starting on September the 29th, is called Dog Without Feathers. It's a piece by the Brazilian choreographer Deborah Kolker, uh, and it is inspired by the region, animals, and peoples of Brazil's Capibaribe River, and it's accompanied by a short sort of 20-minute documentary film, both kind of behind-the-scenes and, and images that, that the dance piece uh, talks about. Uh, Jim Smith is the artistic and executive director of Dance House, and obviously he's he's a partner with Digidance. I got to speak with him about doing dance virtually when it is such a in visual in person medium, and what can dance say that other mediums cannot. This is my conversation with Jim Smith. Jim Smith, hello. How is how is the day treating you? So far, so good. Thanks for asking. Uh, so you are the executive director of Dance House, uh, which is one of the, I guess, partners of this new... Uh, DigiDance initiative. Do is is that accurate? Would you say? That's right. Yeah, DigiDance emerged uh, in the wake of the um, uh, the outbreak of the COVID nineteen and the pandemic that ensued. And given that theaters were uh, closed and you couldn't convene uh, public gatherings, uh, an initiative grew out of a partnership between Dance Dance, which is an organization based in Montreal. Uh, the National Arts Centre, which is based in Ottawa, and the Harbourfront Centre, which is based in Toronto, and ourselves, uh, Dance House here in Vancouver. And it really was um, the four organizations which collaborated uh, previously because, of course, whenever we were presenting companies or productions on the live stage, we would uh, always be in contact in terms of welcoming an international company in particular, in terms of figuring out, you know, how, how is this routing working for you? And what days are you, uh, you know, hosting the company? And what days will work for us? So there was a natural relationship that already was inherent there. And in the challenges of the pandemic, we all came together and decided that we work collaboratively in terms of trying to problem solve the situation. And the DigiDance initiative emerged out of those conversations and allowed us to sort of, you know, throw together 
not only our collective problem solving, but also just, you know, learning how to become digital broadcasters and pulling together our networks so that we could, you know, reach out and find uh, work that seemed to be appropriate for all four of our communities to work together and ultimately on a national basis. How do you find that, that you know, be, be, I guess because dance is such inherently a live experience, how do you find that translated to uh, a digital viewership? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and one that I think is going on within the practice itself. Um, certainly, uh, dance suffered from not being documented or captured on film or video or some alternative media. Uh, just because of the, you know, there's so much going on in terms of the three-dimensional element that uh, those forms, uh, those other mediums, were always viewed as not quite living up to the standard of it, unless you're prepared to actually invest, uh, you know, a, a whole lot of resources to, uh, you know, have a multitude of cameras, you know, somewhere between two and four that are actually trying to uh, capture the work and then a fair bit of an investment in the actual post-production work of editing it. And so certainly prior to the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of material that was on offer. And arguably there still isn't today. But I would say that the, the crisis, uh, the challenge uh, that the pandemic put upon, you know, dance in particular as a form brought to light this to be an issue. And I, you know, I sense that there are a lot more uh, choreographers and uh, dance companies that are thinking more about the possibilities of digital. Turning to, you know, how did people actually receive the work? It, um Certainly when there was no alternative, uh, given that the theaters were closed, I think that it certainly, uh, you know, was well received and that it was uh, something to do, albeit again, something that you had to do in front of a screen. One thing that um, did emerge out of it, though, is uh, it allowed for all four of the organizations who were, you know, relatively fixated on the fact that they had to deal with a local geography that is, you know, you had to buy a ticket, you had to come to the theater to actually participate in these presentations. But moving them digitally actually opened up that um, that challenge, that barrier, and allowed for audience members from you know outside of our geographical cities. And certainly, as a consequence, we saw you know tickets being purchased throughout all of Canada and outside of our four major centers. So, well, while there's still limitations uh, in terms of what the digital format can do, it is you know making its way forward as being an offering that you know uh, is a it's that, it's that strange thing about, you know, the going into the theater, that experience is never going to be the same unless you're actually in the theater. However, the facsimile of it or the document of it happening in a theater is sort of the next best thing you can come to uh, in the form of dance. And I, I think sort of a, another strange dichotomy that, that would, would seem to manifest was that, you know, in, in dance, because there's no words, everything is enhanced, the movement, the, the music, the presence... And yet with how technology is affecting people's attention spans, it almost seems like that's going to be harder in a way to keep people's uh, attention drawn when it is presented digitally. Uh, it's a good, interesting question. Uh, certainly, you know, I would say that we've tried to send out communication that, you know, when you're about to sit down and watch a dance production in particular on a video or on, a, on the screen, you know, the importance of actually making sure that you set the stage for yourself in some regards. And that is, you know, watch it on a large screen, try, you know, don't watch it on something small, 
make sure that you, you know, dim the lights, um, make sure that you try and set aside the time that you can watch it from beginning to end so that, you know, you don't suffer those uh, interruptions. So really trying to recreate as much as possible what the experience would be like if you were actually sitting in a venue. So, uh, the, the main piece that, um, Digidance or that, that you're working with is, uh, Dog Without Feathers, right? By, uh, by Deborah Kolker, which comes out of, um, uh, Brazil. Uh, that's right. What, what can you tell us about this piece and why, why was it a, a good fit for both Dance House and, uh, Digidance? So in the past year where we were very much experimenting with, you know, how do we put dance forward? we very mindfully uh, gave the programming a Canadian sensibility. That is, we were trying to make sure that we were shining a light on either Canadian artists or Canadian companies. So um, it was a work by Crystal Pite, although performed on the Paris Opera Ballet, which was one of the first initiatives that kicked off Dance House. And then it was, uh, you know, Jean-Pierre Perrault, who's uh, unfortunately is a, a Canadian choreographer, but dead at this time. And what we broadcast was a historic work called Joe. Um, and for both of these, I'm, 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 I am coming back to your question, just so you know, in both of these situations, we were able, we, we realized that we were able to bring to an audience uh, things that we actually couldn't put on the stage. The Paris Opera Ballet is not a touring company. It, you know, occasionally goes for, uh, you know, an outing in a couple of cities, but it really is a, a large, large company that's based in, uh, you know, the Palais Garnier in Paris. And so the opportunity to actually bring that to our audience, recognizing it wasn't in living form, uh, but in a, you know, again, this digital form was something that we viewed as an opportunity. With Joe, it was a similar type uh, idea that, you know, here's a work that no longer could be performed because of its historic nature, but such a, a reference point in the Canadian dance canon that it was important to share with an audience even at this point in time. So Deborah Coker, in the upcoming year, their plan is for there to be four DigiDance presentations. Only uh, Deborah Cor Coker has been uh, put forward publicly at this point in time. The other three are, you know, still in development and uh, will will be announced as we, as we get closer to each of them. But the approach this year was really uh, to try and accentuate this idea of bringing to the stage things that you know were challenging. Or pardon me, trying to bring to an audience things that would be challenging for us to bring to the stage. So Deborah Coker's work uh, out of Brazil is uh, uh, very much inspired by the people who are living up in the north. Uh, east part of Brazil along a riverbed which is uh, dries out in one part of the season and then uh, you know the hardship that people living in that area indigenous people have to you know the struggle of their life that goes through but then the rains come uh, which of course allow for renewal and the opportunity in the cycle to all begin again so it was a, a work that is very much about a place a very specific place and um, it gets captured inside of the piece itself with a film element that's actually baked into the digital presentation. Uh, she she mentions that she didn't intend for the piece to be political, but it, it ends up being so, I think, because of what the words of Jao uh, Cabral de Melonoto uh, were. Do you think that then off that art, dance, theater any any sort of any visual medium is inherently political 
again, I, I wouldn't want to tell any viewer <laughs> what they would be thinking, but certainly my own reflection on the piece and my own experience with it. Um, I, I, I think that there is an underlying message of, you know, human survival, human struggle, uh, notions of capitalism potentially run amok uh, come through. And uh, the title of the piece, as you, as you referenced, is taken from this poetry. Um, you pronounced his name way better than I have. You must have some Portuguese connection in your background. <laughs> no, I mean I, um, I I'm I'm okay at I'm okay at Spanish, so that's it's sort of what I'm going off of. <laughs> ah, there you go. Um, but yeah, no, it, it it's certainly I again my own read of the piece is that it really does uh, confront the viewer with trying to reconcile, you know, a way of life that we all share and that we're all a part of, and yet recognizing it has an implication or an impact on parts of the world that we may not think about or peoples of the world that are not in our daily life. You know, I, I think Dog Without Feathers, I, I see two reoccurring themes that are ever present in art these days, especially ones that are in a live uh, stage-based setting, and that is, of course, the environment and um, the lives and rights of, of the, the indigenous communities. Why do you think these two topics have been so prevalent in, in different forms of art over the last decade? And, and what makes dance a, a particularly effective medium for, for telling these types of stories? Um, I would say that both of, uh, you know, the situation of climate change and the environment and, uh, you know, the path of Indigenous peoples, not uh, only in Canada, but around the world, have been very active topics for consideration in the performing arts uh, world. Um, there, there, you know, there are a number of works that have been uh, coming out recently, and certainly, you know, your observation would be the same as mine. Um, that you know they very are much uh, very much coming to the surface uh, as to you know why make a dance piece about it I you know it's uh, I me for go it's a bit like poetry in that um, there are you know ideas there are things that we potentially feel see experience in a way through you know the visual element of dance uh, that we don't necessarily receive or experience the same way when it's through, you know, the printed word or even the spoken word for that matter. Um, you know, emotions uh, get revealed, a sense and states of being uh, become a bit more uh, palpable, you know, visceral in that regard. So I, I think that um, particularly with this piece by Deborah Coker, the, the, the notions of struggle, the notions of survival, uh, I get, you know, conveyed through the body and uh, onto the viewer in a way that I think is very specific and unique to the form of dance. Uh, and I, I know that the, the presentation um, will also include uh, a 20-minute pre-show documentary, and I know the work itself also features uh, images uh, from the filmmaker... No, I can't. I can't find it here. But um, and I think you know it's interesting. I think documentaries is is one sort of medium where where we're seeing dance per, per, portrayed more uh, on film. How do you think the the the, the documentary and, and and the film that's sort of intertwined with, with Dog Without Feathers? How does that enhance uh, its story? So this has been a key element in uh, bringing and developing the digi dance format. And um, the documentary 
doesn't necessarily try to give voice to an interpretation to the work, but rather is really offered up uh, to provide context around the artist and where this work potentially fits into their oeuvre or into their career. So it is uh, much more an opportunity to hear from the artist directly in that regard in terms of, you know, why this piece, why now, how, how does it fit into the trajectory of, you know, what, you, what came beforehand, what, you know, the ideas that are potentially in your future. And so in doing that, uh, the intent is to provide some context to the viewer that rather than, you know, here's this title, here's this choreographer, um, it's, it's a bit of a program note, if you will, that, you know, if you were sitting in the theater, you know, hopefully it would be offered up to you some context as to where this piece comes from and, you know, why you should care or why you should be interested in watching it. So the, uh, the documentary uh, wraparound for each of the DigiDance presentations uh, in, in effort tries to do the exact same thing, to give the viewers some further context and some further insight into, you know, why this piece and why now. I, I think in a way... Brazil has become a poster child for um, human intervention and interaction of the environment. You know, we're seeing what's happening with the Amazon and and all the oils and, and losing the wildlife there. Um, and the uh, Caribapai region and, and the river, which is where Dog Without Feathers takes place, is also a, a sort of a, a very specific uh, region within Brazil. What, if any, did, did you know about... Um, Th that specific areas and the environmental issues uh, affecting it prior to seeing and, and working on this piece? Uh, certainly, I would say just, you know, the, the information that is available in the public sphere. Uh, I, you know, as you say, Brazil, uh, you know, its current leader, uh, Bolsonaro, is a uh, standout in terms of his regard for uh, certainly the environment, uh, certainly for the indigenous peoples and even for, you know, all members of the society, arguably. Um, I would also say that there's been such a focus on Brazil as, you know, the largest uh, country and the largest economy in Latin America. And certainly its uh, previous rise in hosting uh, the World Cup, in hosting the Olympics, drew a fair bit of attention and awareness about Brazil, I would offer. Uh, certainly the political uh, landscape has changed considerably. And, uh, you know, the headlines that come out um, certainly give you a context in terms of understanding what's going on in Brazil. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to think that they need special insight in terms of looking at the work and uh, being able to read it, but rather just, a, a, you know, a, a general knowledge, a general awareness of what's going on in Brazil, I think um, amply, you know, prepares an audience member to sort of, you know, appreciate what it is that's being um, explored, developed, and offered up and commented on. You know, so so even though this is sort of, a, I guess, a, a very specific story, I think I think Coker calls it her most Brazil piece that she's ever done. In a way, is it a a universal story? Is 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 there a, a an element of, of of you know global community about it? I definitely think there's a universality uh, in the theme of the work. And again, this notion of the cycle of life or the cycle of a year, the cycle of um, uh, the cycle of the river, again, uh, as I say there, you know, we, we see the there's a caked on mud on the bodies of the performers, which, you know, um, you know, suggests that, the, you know, the river has gone on through, it's, it's the dry time, it's uh, when the river has receded the most. And, um, 
the, the struggle that people go through as a result of getting through daily life under, you know, uh, harsh, harsh conditions that are brought upon by the environment. Uh, but then we also see sort of the elation of when, uh, you know, some change happens. So there, I think that, again, anybody can uh, look at the work and see that sort of, you know, daily struggle of life uh, very present and very much uh, portrayed on the state stage. Uh, you you know you you mentioned the the caked on mud and I think an element of dance that is is often overlooked, um, you know because I think we're you know we're so used to seeing either you know contemporary dance which is just street clothes or, or or ballet and there's a very specific uniform for that is the costumes and and, and the wardrobe and, and dress that 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 be, can become a, a part of the story. Uh, you mentioned the caked on mud. What what. What and, and how do the costumes in this piece um, add to what the story is is trying to say? Uh, I, again, I would offer that it's trying to give a visceral uh, response in the viewer, so that you know, in in watching it, a whole sense of you know what would it be like to have dryness, to you know feel that um, you know that climate that. Uh, you know, the, the lack of moisture, again, again, my understanding is that uh, when the rainy season comes along, it's a very humid place to be uh, living life. But when the dry season comes along, it's something very different. So I think the, you know, the visual, uh, the, way, the way it reads visually, but also the texture and how it would feel and just imagining, you know, being caked on with mud, the mere suggestion of that, I think adds to, again, the sensibility and the feeling of the piece for a viewer. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, my my mother was a dancer, so obviously I've I've been into and, and surrounded by dance most of my life. But it, it it strikes me as, you know, in terms of an artistic medium, you know, you compare it to film or or, or theater or podcasts, um, or you know, a, a rock show that maybe there aren't as many young people that are attending a, a dance show that aren't in the dance community themselves um, compared to some other, you know, mediums, mediums like film. Do, do you find that to be true? Is that a misconception? And, and how do you, how do you think um, that can be combated? Ah, the, ah, the fate of dance. This is <laughs> one of my favorite hobby horses to pull out and ride. Um, only because I, you know, I, uh, those who know me well have sort of, uh, suggested that I'm a bit of a sucker for an underdog, and dance is uh, definitely an underdog. Um, if you look at its history, it, you know, it had these troubled relationships with the church and the body and how that was all wrong and, you know, <laughs> evil. Um, in our uh, current contemporary time, uh, dance, unfortunately, is not offered as part of an educational curriculum that actually allows, you know, young people when they're learning about music or when they're learning about, you know, other forms of media just by going to school, let alone, you know, the ones that sort of surround us on a daily basis. Uh, dance doesn't necessarily have a, you know, prominent place or prominent vehicle to, you know, be presented, to be offered up as something to engage with or to participate. So it's, you know, it, it very much has been pushed to the side and, um, and a bit on the fringe. I, I would then even further add that, you know, arguably in the 70s, and I think, you know, dance did this to itself, dance did go through a period of time where the, the form itself looked somewhat inwardly and became, 
a bit more difficult to penetrate if you were a layperson or if you didn't have a doorway in beforehand. I, I would actually observe that I think dance has been enjoying a resurgence in the past decade or two. Um, certainly there's, uh, you know, dance audiences are on the, on the upswing at this point in time. There's, you know, certainly more dance activity going on in terms of uh, the professional community and the number of artists that are actually practicing. And consequently, as a result, there are more, um, there's more of a following and more of an audience for it. That being said, whether or not it's hitting youth is a challenge. Uh, dance being often a, you know, an extracurricular that you have to pay for, as opposed to one who comes through your schooling system. There are barriers to access, which I think are also part of the challenge and part of the problem. Um, so here's where I feel like I need to insert dance house, <laughs> the organization that I'm working with does, you know, a fair bit to try and engage, particularly with youth, uh, to try and pull them into our community to have some exposure around dance. Because it is, again, a whole other window or frame around the world, which, um, you know, if you invest some time, you get to participate in just as, you know, uh, you can with music or you can with podcasts or, you know, film for that matter. So would, would you say that in a way dance is is misunderstood uh i it's a very good question i don't know that it's misunderstood i think it uh potentially has some biases that it needs to overcome as potentially uh being for you know you, you need to somehow be part of an inside crowd or you need to you know, you need to have special access or a special training or a special insight. And of course, with, you know, most artistic expressions of the world, I, you know, fundamentally believe that's not true, that anybody can, you know, approach a work, be it a visual piece of art or a performance piece of art uh, or a musical piece of art and have their own uh, response to it. And um, whether or not the, you know, the work speaks to them in a way that they are able to, you know, find satisfaction in that engagement is the, it's, it's a tricky part. And that's where I think that, you know, there are opportunities with some, uh, you know, um, interventions in the form of things like documentaries when you present a dance work or an artist talk where you hear from the artist before you actually engage with the, uh, the work directly is a way to, not, you know, not um, give aha or not give insider information, but I think really offer everyone a chance to just feel at ease with their own thinking about a work. And the more you talk about work, and again, I would apply this to all artwork, the more you recognize that there are no hard answers. There are just various perspectives. And the more you talk about and share those perspectives, the more enriched your experience with that work and other people's engagement with it becomes you know, it, it's interesting. I, I think in, in terms of visibility of dance that we're seeing in the media, most of it is these, you know, reality shows that do with, you know, uh, kids dance competitions. Yes, there's Dancing with the Stars or, 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 or So You Think You Can Dance. Show, like, shows like that, are, are, are they a good representation? Do you think they, they help or, or hurt um, the, the, the conceptions of, of what dance is to to most people? Ah, I think that there's a place for everything. That is, if, uh, you know, people find an opportunity to engage with dance, whether that's, you know, at the local community center or whether it's uh, by watching a dance competition or, you know, the talent competition, which is a very old formula. Um, but those are 
you know, uh, they, they have a place in terms of introducing the form of dance to an audience and for those, for that purpose. I think that they're, uh, you know, they have a place and they're valuable and important. Um, for, for me, I think that, you know, what becomes interesting is how do you expand people's perspective of what the form can be so that they see it more than being limited by a box or by a format of, you know, here's a three minute, you know, dance competition piece, which is filled with, you know, a bunch of tricks and a bunch of lighting and, you know, some wowing music. But how do you, how do you bring a viewer beyond that experience or beyond that, um, that idea of what dance can be and try and, you know, allow them to embrace a wider vision of what dance is, a wider expression of what it can do, uh, you know, what it has to offer beyond that quick fix that might be, you know, a shorter, um, you know, fast hit of dance. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I know uh, Kolker was also the choreographer for the uh, Rio Olympics uh, in 2016. And as someone who was involved with the 2010 Olympics, I know just how big uh, it, it, that stage is. I, I mean, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but, you know, choreographing for something like that versus, you know, something smaller or, you know, some, something on a, you know, a, a single stage. Does, does that go to what you were saying about the, the, the form of dance and how it can be adapted for almost any environment? Uh, I, I think so. Absolutely. And the Olympics are again, another door, you know, opening and closing ceremonies in particular. Um, they really are a doorway in for a wider audience, a very broad public to, you know, have some engagement with dance. And it's a, it's a reference point. Uh, um, so, again, it's, you know, how, you know, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm trying to hook people in, um, but being, you know, somebody who certainly feels that, you know, part of my role, part of my responsibility is to serve the form and try and advance its uh, recognition, its place in society. I, I certainly think that, you know, seeing large-scale events um, like uh, an opening ceremony event at the Olympics is, again, an opportunity to capture an imagination for, um, for you know, for some uh, somebody who's new to dance to potentially have an engagement or an encounter with it. And hopefully it makes them become more curious to look beyond that, uh, you know, that moment and uh, find something more meaningful or deeper in terms of a point of engagement with a form of dance. Where do you sit on the the state of dance in Canada? I mean, you've got yourselves, Harborfront, National Arts Centre, Dance Dance, the other organizations you're working with. Of course, there's the National Ballet School of Canada. There's a few other, you know, great dance schools and dance organizations uh, in, in the country. And yet it still doesn't seem to have the same you know, visibility or even seeing funding as, you know, National Film Board or, you know, film schools or anything like that. Where, where, what do you think or how, how can this country improve its dance outreach? Uh, how can it improve its dance outreach? That, that's, um, <laughs> that is a very good question that, you know, uh, me and my team think about on, uh, on a, a daily basis, uh, given, given what it is, uh, the mission and the mandate of our organization. But I, I did want to go back to, you know, where is uh, dance at this, you know, Canadian dance at this moment in time? And I, I would offer that, uh, you know, I've been working in dance since the turn, uh, gosh, goes back to 1990 is when I 
first started working in dance, I moved to Montreal and worked with a company called La 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 Human Steps. And at the time, the choreographer Edward Locke and La 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 were truly on top of their game and on top of the world in many ways. The company had just finished touring with uh, David Bowie on the Sound and Vision Tour. Um, uh, Louisa Cavalier, who was viewed as, you know, the the dark swan in the boring, uh, you know, dance milieu that was on the go previously. And again, this would have been ending in the period of the, the 70s and the 80s where dance, again, as, as I was referencing, looked a bit inward. And at that time, there was a scene in Quebec in particular, Marie Chouinard, um, Overgo, another company, uh, Michael Montanero. These were all, uh, Edward Locke, of course, was inside of there as well. These were all choreographers and companies that were being viewed, you know, around the world. They were a curiosity because um, this place called Quebec in particular, which of course was going through a, its own political movement of, you know, saying, yes, we are Canadian, but more importantly, we are Quebecois truly caught the interest of, you know, those who were not Canadian in terms of a reflection of uh, Canada and what was going on more specifically in Quebec. Interestingly, you know, my assessment from there would be that that centre of dance, which sort of resided in Quebec during that time, then moved into Belgium. And again, interestingly, what was going on was the EU was coming together. Uh, Belgians were again going, yes, we are European, but more importantly, we are actually Belgian. And as Belgians, we have something very specific to say. From there, you know, that spot, that hot spot, arguably moved on to Israel with um, Ohad Naharin and his company Batsheva, a wake of, you know, choreographers and dancers that followed, that sort of put Israel dance, Israeli dance, sort of center stage and uh, had the rest of the world in the art world taking note in terms of, you know, what was going on, because again, a new form, a very distinctive, innovative voice was emerging and was sort of capturing people's attention. Turning back to the state of dance in Canada, I would say that, you know, there are lots of really great things going on in Canadian dance right now. Our own here in Vancouver, Crystal Pipe, of course, is, you know, taking the world by storm. Ballet ABC, a company which is touring around the world these days, again, a standout in the international sphere. Certainly companies in Montreal are still doing, you know, very, very strong. They are not necessarily that hot spot that they once were, but Maurice Renard still, you know, commands the attention of many, many audiences around the world. So I would actually say it's a relatively positive moment for Canadian dance. Uh, of course, you know, the harder part is your second question, you know, how do we get the appreciation of a Canadian public in particular to pay attention, to feel a sense of um, participation inside of it, but also a sense of, you know, pride and, you know, identity, uh, you know, do they see themselves reflected in the work that is expressing the Canadian's experience on stage? Um, so ultimately then, what do you want an audience who watches Dog Without Feathers, what do you want them to, to take away, if anything, from, from the performance? The so many things, the virtuosity of the performance, of course, is, you know, one of them, the ideas that get woven together, the fact that they are expressed through the framework of uh, a perspective of being a Brazilian at this moment in time. What is it like to be alive in this moment? What is it like to be, you know, a human, you know, living in a contemporary life? Um, so really, I, 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 I always uh, like to think that work, generally speaking, should provoke some questions, some, uh, uh, some moments of reflection on, you know, how are we similar as a viewer? 
to what the ideas we see on stage, how do we identify with them, or potentially how are we different? You know, how do we, you know, not necessarily fit into that worldview or to that particular, um, you know, idea that is being explored on the, the stage. So, you know, ultimately lots of space to um, try and, you know, reflect upon the work, but more importantly, reflect upon, you know, how do we see ourselves? How do we, how does, how does the work make us think about our own reality and our own existence at this moment in time? Well, uh, DigiDance's Dog Without Feathers by Deborah Kolker is streaming September 29th to October 11th. Uh, and you can go to dancehouse.ca for tickets. Is that correct? That's bang on. Well done. Thank you. Excellent. Jim Smith, thank you so much for, for taking the time this afternoon. Thank you, Dan. All right. You, you, you have a good day. Stay safe over there in Vancouver. All the best. Take Alrighty. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it. My conversation with... Jim Smith, artistic and executive editor of Dance House and DigiDance partner. Dog Without Feathers is streaming from September 29th to October 11th. And for tickets and informations on both on Dog Without Feathers and DigiDance, you can visit dancehouse.ca. If you want information about... uh, DigiDance in general, you can go to mpmgarts.com and that will have the um, information press release for you. And if you want tickets, which start, are, which start at $15 plus applicable taxes, that is dancehouse.ca, streaming from September 29th to October 11th, video on demand streaming in Canada only. That does it. For me today, my thanks to Jim Smith and to Scout Taylor Compton. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Endeavors on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Deezer, and now Amazon Music. We are now on Amazon Music. You can follow us on social media at Endeavors Radio, both on Facebook and on Twitter. And hopefully, uh, I know I've been saying this a lot Um sporadically throughout the the years this podcast has been up uh but i'm looking at ways to launch my patreon again and just have another outlet and, and maybe add because all these most of these interviews are um filmed over zoom with face to face uh potentially finding a way to uh put some video content up as well whether it's through patreon or on youtube but i just have to get approval from most of the um guests that I uh, interview over the time. Anyway, that does it for me. Thank you very much, and I will see you next time. Ciao for now.